Right now, switch your family to T-Mobile and get four lines for $25 a line with AutoPay and 5G access included on America's largest 5G network. So don't wait. Get unlimited and nationwide 5G access for the whole family for just $25 a line. Visit a T-Mobile store or T-Mobile.com today. Plus taxes and fees. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using over 50 gigs a month due to data prioritization. Video at 480p. Unlimited while on our network. Qualifying credit and four plus lines required. Capable device required for 5G. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain features. See T-Mobile.com. The Leslie Marshall Show. The only true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy in talk. I'm Leslie Marshall, and I'm very glad, very pleased to welcome uh, this afternoon to the program. And I hope you are as well. Somebody who's going to give you a lot of information. We're going to have a great conversation in this next hour. Maria Soma is organizing director for the United Steelworkers, the USW. She's been an organizer for her entire career because she's a woman, of course, right? First as a community organizer and then as a labor organizer. And she started with the Steelworkers back in 2001 as a healthcare workers organizer and became organizing director back in 2015. Uh, Lots to talk about today, but first up, let's welcome Maria to the program, Maria Soma. Uh, Maria, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Glad to have you with us and thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Uh, We have so much uh, to talk about and so many topics to cover. Um, So let's start with COVID-19. We're in this uh, pandemic. um, And right now, this virus and this pandemic we're in has really put focus and emphasis on how devastating, not just this can be to our economy, but how devastating the income divide is in our nation the difference between rich and poor, because a lot of middle class are feeling lower middle class, lower than middle class income with this economic inequality in our nation. Um, We also can see as a result of this pandemic, perhaps more magnifying glass uh, that that is put on and, and, you know, our microscopic look that has been revealing how low wages are for so many Americans, Um, a lack of access uh, to affordable health care for so many Americans, especially those who are working on the front line, those essential workers. Um, there are food service workers, grocery clerks, delivery drivers. Uh, the list is endless. Anytime we get anything, there's somebody essential out there that delivered that to us or put it all together uh, to make it into our hands, to our front door or on um, our table. Um, so first of all, can would you say, Maria, that Maybe turning lemons into lemonade, one good thing that's come from COVID is that America's waking up to how essential these essential workers have been all along because they've always been essential, but that's just been definitely a highlight now and a top of mind, uh, front of mind uh, for so many Americans out there that, hey, they really know about this now and so do politicians. Absolutely. Um, I think what it did, COVID, the pandemic, 
just exposed an existing system that you just talked about. And part of coming to America or being American is this idealized American dream that we can all make it if we just work hard. And what does the word make it really mean, right? And so every person I know who works in those sectors that you talked about work very, very, very hard. They oftentimes, because a lot of those jobs are part-time jobs with no benefits, have to string together two to three jobs in order to make it, quote unquote, make it with the American dream. And when I mean make it, it means being able to pay this month's bills. It doesn't mean being able to have extras. It doesn't mean being able to have a savings, let alone a retirement account, or and or being able to pay for the essentials like health care for families. And what this pandemic has done has exposed a system, right, that that has been in existence and that there are people who profit from this system and others who don't profit, but they're the foundation, the basis of a lot of stuff that is that is, that people use in our society or need in our society. So absolutely, there is this awakening. And the idea that everybody, again, in the American dream to make it thinks they're middle class. Yep. And we've let go of words like working class. We've yes. let that go. We don't use those words anymore. And what this has done is expose the working class Versus the non-working class, and, and you and, hear that, and you hear that that phrase now, right? Politicians yes. and lay people, working class, right? Yes. Working class. Yes, and I said that I've been uh, like my bio said I've been doing organizing for over thirty years, and thirty years ago I could have said working class. Five years ago or a year ago, I wouldn't use the words working class. Six months ago or four months ago, I can. Maria, I just, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I like you so far. And I just want to point out there was a community organizer that ran for president at one time, a man of color (laughs) named Barack Obama. We have yet to have a woman president, a woman of color, and a Latina, the fastest growing segment of our population in the United States. Just throwing that out there. Um, You know, although we have a good side to COVID, and I know some people may say good side if they've just tuned in, you know, talking about uh, the awareness that essential workers are essential, but hey, they always have been. But we have some dark, many, sadly, dark and ugly sides to COVID as well. And and when we look at some of those corporations and corporations that have uh, taken advantage of and have profited off of this pandemic, I'm going to call one out by name, and that's Amazon. Uh, their warehouse, uh, you know, we have lawsuits around the country. We are seeing by workers against this company, against Amazon for profiting off the pandemic. Uh, and they're profiting off the works of uh, the work of the backer, the back of the workers, the working class. Um, what they've done here is clearly in this pandemic left workers unprotected. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, everywhere, it's everywhere in the media, workers at Amazon say um, they were forced to work uh, even if they had symptoms or forced to work alongside and come into contact with people with symptoms. They said Amazon has not been forthcoming about the number of employees who have tested positive for the virus. These are not just essential workers. Uh, These are essential workers that are human beings and and shouldn't just be numbers in a factory. Shame on Amazon or any company profiting off this pandemic and not protecting their workers adequately uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic. Your thoughts? Absolutely. You've got uh, billionaires 
like Jeff Bezos and companies that are making billions and billions of dollars a year, disregarding, I believe, the health of not only the workers. Remember, we're all part of a community. What they, happens to them at work, they take home with them. They take home to their families. Their families live in a community. That community gets infected. And so when we talk about companies like uh, these major corporations who are benefiting during this time and not then sharing right, that benefit and doing the very minimal that they can to protect their workers. And by protecting the workers, they're protecting the community. And I don't want people to segregate workers from the community. When Amazon and Kroger's and all of those stores and the targets of the world, when they force their employees to work in unsafe, unhealthy conditions, that then affects the entire community in which we all live in. And people forget that piece. It isn't just about protecting the workers which we need to do, but they have an obligation to the community who purchases their products, who buy them to not. And so they have to protect their workers because that's the front line of our community. So and when they go home, they, they, they are, they are exposing potentially uh, their families and then their families go out and work or their families interact with somebody delivering something. And then, you know, that, then that becomes uh, irresponsible to our neighbor, like you say, to that community. Um, And then it becomes uh, beyond crisis because these people are working, even though they have symptoms. And then we're we're putting our healthcare community even higher at risk. It's just a terrible, it's beyond a Pandora's box. It is. And the, 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 the thing, the key here is that they can afford not to do it. We talk about some small businesses who say that they're going under because of COVID. That's not the case for these major, major employers who at this point have the money and the resources to be able to behave differently and choose not to. That's the key here. They choose not to. There's Mm -hmm. a choice. And they don't, they're making the wrong choice of not putting their employees first. By not doing that, they have put our whole community at risk. And when you, and we say they, you know, I talked about Amazon, but they're not the only ones. Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods, Walmart, Target, and I'm going to mention another one in a minute. Um, what do do you feel? Because I do that we as consumers have a responsibility to use our money uh, or not use our money wisely to send a signal. And I'm a, I'm a, you know some people want to boycott these companies. Uh, or just choose to do your business and take your business elsewhere from Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods, Walmart, and Target until they treat their workers with respect and protect their workers. As a union organizer, absolutely agree with you. <laughs> I can't say anything, but yes, right on, sister. <laughs> uh, at Federal Express, another company I wanted to mention, um, I wanted you to talk about something that happened that was unprecedented. There was a walk-off, a May Day strike. Uh, we actually, I'm going to talk about that after this break. I didn't realize, I'm having so much fun here. I forgot we're on the radio and we have a clock. We go to Abide by Maria. So hang tight. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our guest and we'll be back with you. I hope you'll stick around. There's a lot more for us to talk about. In the meantime, check out the USW's website. You can learn a lot more from the United Steelworkers, USW.org. And on Twitter, at Steelworkers. Check it out there and all the blogs by the great USW president. We'll be back with our guest and with you right after this. Don't go away.
If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. We're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Maria Soma is our guest organizing director for the United Steelworkers. She's been an organizer for her entire career, first as a community organizer and then a labor organizer. It's good to have her with us. Maria, thank you for holding. Welcome back. We were talking about COVID-19, the the spotlight it has shined on essential workers, and the spotlight it has shined on companies like Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods, Walmart, Target, and Federal Express for not caring about their Uh, employees for not giving their employees accurate information or adequate protection on the job. Maria, before the break, I was going to ask you to talk about uh, the unprecedented May Day strike uh, in which FedEx workers uh, demanded safer working conditions during this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, what is also, well, for a union organizer, thank you for the introduction, what is exciting is that the strike's coming back. (laughs) that workers are taking control of their workplace and proving to the owners and the employers that they value their value and that they matter in their business model. And so that's what happened on May Day. Workers, not just FedEx, but all the ones that you talked about, the, the gig economy folks, the Instacart, all of those folks decided that they had to walk off on the job because their employers were not listening to their, um, their cries and pleas for help for proper PPE and for proper precautions because people were getting sick. And these are all public facing, you know, positions and jobs. And so their exposure rate is so much higher than the rest of ours, um, because we have the luxury sometimes of not being able to to have to go in and and face 200 people, um, you know, as part of our daily work. Uh, And so, yeah, they struck. They wanted their employees to know that they were serious, that they were willing to risk their jobs in order to save their lives. That's actually what it was. It was a strike for their lives. Absolutely. Here in California, we have the um, uh, highest population in the country. We have the highest um, immigrant population in the country or in the most diverse state uh, in the country. And of our cases, 55 percent of our COVID cases are Latinos. Mm-hmm. And the majority of those Latinos that are COVID positive are essential workers. They don't have the luxury, to your point, absolutely, of uh, working from home. Um, they're, they're out there. They're more exposed. And it's interesting you say that because my next question had to do with uh, Purdue Farms and other food processing plants. Um, there are complaints, many complaints that have been filed with the USDA. Um, there are people that have walked off the job. Uh, rightly so. They've had concerns about the working conditions, concerns about hazard pay, and many of these workers are Black or Latino. Um, Can you talk about those food processing plants, those working conditions, um, and that hazard pay for people that aren't aware of this, although it has been definitely uh, touched upon in the news cycle? Yeah. So once again, it's another grouping or set of workers, right? And and what you cite are uh, the numbers about the essential workers is a lot of them who are either immigrant workers or people of color or women, right? This is who makes up this workforce. And so when you look at, again, the cases around the country, no matter where you're at, you're looking at a predominance of people of color who are the ones who are, are, are coming down with the cases of COVID because they're the most exposed 
once again because of the workforce. When you think about meatpacking, right, we go to our grocery store and we look at the meat and we don't think about the thousands of people that it takes to actually produce that product and what working conditions are like for them. And so you've got poultry plants and other meat processing plants, beef plants that have to go in. There are people, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a meat processing plant. We represent Pilgrim's um, uh, chicken plant, uh, processing plant. So when you go in there, the workers are standing side by side with yes. each, right next to each other with blood and other, you know, cool. animal products there. They're standing right next to each other. They're talking to each other. They're passing off the products to each other to do this work. And so there's absolute close contact. And and when you talk about one person, you know, you, you uh, being um, having COVID and going into work, they and these meat processing plants are huge. There are hundreds, if not a thousand, over a thousand workers in these plants. And so when you've got one person on one shift who is infecting somebody in that setting, they can easily be a hub, which they were, to infect hundreds of their fellow co-workers who then went home. And so that's exactly what happened. And, and these, again, are not the mom and pop farms that you think about or the agronic farms that, you know, maybe Californians or those of us out here buy from and free range chickens. These are, again, million, billion dollar companies who could choose to do different and protect their workers. And the workers walked off because what they found out was there were hundreds of their co-workers who were infected with COVID and they didn't know. They didn't know. They weren't told. And they weren't beginning any more social distance or taking into consideration everything that the scientists have told us we have to have in place to protect each other, right? Not only the workers, but each other. And they're choosing not to do it. So workers have no choice but to go out on strike. And and absolutely, these are workers who are predominantly, again, people of color, who because of either circumstances or choice have no other options to work but in these places. People can say, why don't they go somewhere else? They can't. Where are they going to go? Because Ty I, I didn't even mention Tyson. Tyson had over a thousand cases at one plant. Yes. I, I, I mean... I, th that's an incredibly high number. I don't think people understand at one plant. Um, I want to talk about from the food processing where that food goes. That food then goes to the retailer, right? And uh, retailers like Whole Foods I mentioned earlier. Kroger's another one I want to mention. I want you to talk about something. This really bothered me because right now in California, we have incredible, uh, we have a surge in spikes uh, mm -hmm. in coronavirus cases. We're seeing that in Arizona in Texas, in Florida, four of the largest states in this country, okay? Four of the most diverse states in this country. Um, and where there are tons of, do I hear music? Oh, wait, what are we doing? How many, how, I got time? I got time, okay. I, I, I thought I heard the music to break and I was like, oh, I'm like, I'm like a dog at Pavlov experiment, you know? Um, I wanna talk about hero pay. What is hero pay? And is it true that it stopped despite the surge and spike in all of these states? It did. 
It stopped the employers, especially grocery store chains and Amazon workers. They all stopped the hero pay, the $2, extra $2 an hour, um, uh, because they felt like, well, we've done enough now for you, and now you just need to come to work. So yes, it did stop. Although you're right, not only the spike, but the demand for their work and their product has greatly increased just with the strike, right? I mean, not the strike, just with the, the spike, not just because of the spike, but because there's a huge demand for them. And so the idea that as they're expected to do more and more work and put themselves again at more and more risk as these spikes are happening without even any more compensation is just outrageous to me. These are not poor companies. They can choose something else and they choose not to. And, and I mean, these people are putting their lives at risk daily. Um, they're not getting the wages that they should. Um, the, our conversation here, just this example of this industry, just the food service industry, is a perfect example of why unions are so essential because you need somebody to stand in the gap and you need that voice uh, to speak for you on the, on the job. We're gonna take a break. We'll be right back with Maria. I'm Leslie Marshall, back with you as well. Don't go away. And Maria, by the way, is a Vietnamese American, um, also of Italian descent uh, by her a wonderful dad. Um, and I and I have to say that because I stand corrected. I thought I thought she was a Latin chick, and I'm I'm thinking when I looked at her, I'm thinking you are Pacific Islander, a Native American, and then I was completely wrong, completely wrong. Uh, but it's good to have Maria with Mar Maria Soma is organizing director for the United Steelworkers, the USW. And like I said, she's been an organizer her entire career, first as a community organizer, then a labor organizer. And she started with the Steelworkers in 2001 as a healthcare worker organizer and became organizing director in uh, 2015. Maria, thank you for holding. Uh, welcome back. Uh, so much uh, to talk about. Um, there, let's go back to some of the good things that come about when you have a pandemic, realizations of how essential an essential worker is. But another one is more and more workers are realizing we need that voice. We need someone to stand in the gap and to speak on our behalf. And is it fair to say that the pandemic has uh, you know, encouraged workers, if not pushed them in industries that usually don't look at unionizing, to think about unionizing, to think about organizing uh, industries like restaurant workers or home daycare providers. Absolutely. Uh, again, it's this realization that everybody needs someone on their side. Um, and the best thing about this is that the law permits that someone to be on their side, and that's unions, right? Unions have, have, have um, stood beside workers for our entire existence to try to make sure that they have that voice, that we have that voice uh, in, in our workplaces. And so when we think about non-traditional, I'm going to push back a little bit. COVID has opened up the eyes of a lot of folks because they didn't know we existed for a long time, right? Or that they had the rights to organize, right? They think about it as an industry or a manufacturing union. And right. what's been great is when you think United Steelworkers, that is our history and that's where we are rooted. But we actually represent a whole bunch of different professions, a whole bunch of different uh, workplaces. And, um, and certainly, so for us, we're no stranger to a lot of different workplaces that are organizing. And so it's been probably, uh, um, 
we have had more calls from what we would consider or others would consider non-traditional steelworker sector uh, employment places, uh, jobs uh, calling us than, than we've had in my 19 years there with the steelworkers. Uh, but in my introduction, you saw that I was a healthcare organizer. Exactly. Yeah, almost 20 years ago, our union who has had healthcare workers in there for decades before me decided that they wanted to grow in these sectors and wanted to figure out how to broaden our base and provide, again, opportunities for unionization and workplace protection to anybody who would want it. And that's what's happening again in the pandemic, right? And so you've got childcare workers who don't know what their rights are saying, wait a minute, I'm, again, being put at risk. Finally, they see that there are things, they have options available to them and that the strike or that just sitting there and taking it don't have to be the only options. There's another option and that is coming together with their workers, their coworkers, finding a union and figuring out how they can t make those changes at work that makes them more safe and, and gives them uh, you know, a little bit more power with these mega employers. In order for somebody to unionize within a, a sector that isn't typically, uh, you know, something that people knew they could do, right? You know, hey, we can, you know, we can unionize and everybody has the right and the freedom to do that and should. Um, collective bargaining is essential. Uh, obviously, collective bargaining is what helps provide that solution uh, to that problem to bring people to the table. We've seen things happen on a state level. Wisconsin's a perfect example of that. Um, and there are others, um, you know, whether it's state or even federal level, uh, where those, and I'm not trying to be that political here, even though I'm a liberal Democrat progressive, um, uh, you know, uh, that those on the right uh, many time will demonize union and will try and strip collective bargaining rights and, and, and tear down those collective bargaining agreements uh, that are beneficial to the worker. Can you speak to collective bargaining, how essential it is? And how much a part of the solution in uh, getting these agreements, you know, between the worker and the employer, how necessary that is for these workers in a time like this, more so than ever before in our lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. I want. I just want to remind people just a little bit of history. People may have heard about the flu, right? The when when uh, the Spanish flu, when the yeah. Spanish flu came back, right in the nineteens. Uh, um, there, that everyone was. Uh, figuring out, my God, this is what happened to our society. We're going to fall apart. The panic ensued exactly like now. And back in those days, right, when workers were choosing again to respond to what their employers were doing and putting them at risk, they chose unionization. Back in 1919, we had the biggest and largest strikes ever in major industries. 300,000 steelworkers went out on strike in 19, right, uh, doing that Spanish flu a year after. What we're seeing is exactly what's happening now. We're mm. seeing a resurgence and an understanding that collective bargaining is the answer for this protection. And when you say how necessary it is, it's actually the only tool that workers have. It's the only legal tool that workers have is unionization. And when we say the words collective bargaining, all it is is simply workers coming together, deciding what's important to them, and then sitting across the table with their employers and their bosses and saying, we need this. And the power that that has, people say, well, we can do it now. What, what, what are unions needed for? We can do that now. Well, the power that has is that we have a legally binding agreement. The employer doesn't have to sit across the table from you and negotiate unless 
there is a collective bargaining agreement which has the backing of the law that forces the employer to see you as an equal and allows you to have your voice heard. We use those words all the time, have your voices heard, you know, uh, but we mean it. It's really the only vehicle. What I say to employers or to employees who say, I can go and talk to my boss anytime. Why do I need you? I say that is the illusion of inclusion, right? Your boss wants you to think that you have as much power as he does. And that's just not true. But through the power of collective bargaining and the legal ramifications of an employer not accepting it is vast, much more powerful than a single individual or even a group of individuals coming together. And so collective bargaining is the only equalization that workers have nowadays. It's it. It used to be they had other tools. Nowadays, those tools are disappearing and the union and collective bargaining agreements, contracts, are the only tool left for workers. Absolutely, because without the agreement, how can you push an employer to provide a safer workplace? How can you push an employer to provide better pay or health care? And I want to talk about health care because you were a health care organizer. And it's funny you say that because then I saw um, that you were coming on and I read your bio before the show. I thought, aha, perfect guest uh, on this topic, even more so because of that background. The EPI found that only two thirds of non-union workers have health insurance from their employer. 94% of union workers do. Does that surprise you with the background that you have? Absolutely not. An employer is an employer. And one of the things that I want workers to understand is that we all have different roles in society and different roles in the workplace. You are a worker and the employer are bosses. And they have a different set of goals and perspectives or objectives, excuse me, that they need to achieve. You as a worker are a commodity to them, that they use you as a tool to achieve that goal. And so anything that they can do to achieve that goal at the cheapest way possible is what they're going to do, which includes providing benefits that were typical, um, that weren't typical prior to unions, right? Um, And that when unions were a much larger percentage of the workforce and the population, we were able to control the market. And so if you wanted to have a good employee, you had to offer the same benefits that unions fought for, healthcare, retirement. That didn't happen prior to unions. And then when employers started providing it, then they realized unions and then employers fought, did employers and politicians did everything they could to diminish the so-called power of the union, right, in, in, in public policy. Once they were able to do that, then employers could get away with going backwards. And that's exactly what they've done. They have gone backwards and they will do whatever they need to, to cut costs, to cut costs, to cut costs, to achieve their goal right, to achieve their goal. And so that cost cutting absolutely includes healthcare. Absolutely. So I'm not surprised at all. And in fact, I'll be shocked um, that employers will voluntarily do more for their employees, even when they can afford to. Amazons, Amazons, Amazons. They can afford to hire full-time people with benefits and instead a majority of their employees are are part-time workers. Hospitals, healthcare facilities, they have lots of part-time workers, right? And uh, and so even there, they're not providing benefits for health uh, for part-time workers. It's it's a ridiculous, um, it's ridiculous for workers to think or to be surprised that employees are putting their self-interest above theirs. And we need to stop thinking like that, that they're on our side. 
Awesome. And well said. We're going to take another break. It's our last one in the hour. When we come back, our final segment with Maria, uh, we're going to talk about some of the challenges uh, that this pandemic um, presents uh, during uh, COVID-19. If you're trying uh, to unionize because workers need to unionize and want to unionize, we'll touch upon that. And by the way, if you think unions are for you know just the blue collar worker out there, you think of that working class as blue collar not true. Stick around. We'll tell you more about that when we come back. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest is organizing director for the United Steelworkers, Maria Soma, and she has been an organizer her entire career, starting with the Steelworkers in 2001 as a healthcare worker organizer. She became organizing director in 2015. Uh, more than a pleasure to have her with us. Maria, again, thank you for holding and welcome back. Um, I mentioned before the break that uh, there are people out there that want to unionize, certainly people that really need to unionize. But organizing during a pandemic can have some challenges. Can you speak to some of the challenges or make some recommendations out there for people that have those concerns and want to want to organize uh, during uh, this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pandemic, the biggest, the best tool for us as an organizer is being able to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the worker and assess them. During the pandemic, we can't have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so we had to find different tools. Now, I am in my late 50s and uh, had to um, to make sure that we were using every possible new tool there was. So I became an expert on Twitter, on Instagram, on figuring out not only how to use Zoom, but GoToMeeting, uh, Microsoft Teams, uh, 8x8. Every tool that was out there, we figured out what to do. And we figured out how to use it to reach as many workers as we could. And so we were, uh, we've had, we did an entire organizing campaign, the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh. Now, you should like this one, Leslie. This Carnegie uh, Museum, of course, uh, was called the Carnegie Institute, started by Andrew Carnegie. We find it really fitting that um, steelworkers should be organizing his legacy. So we we love the fact that uh, his legacy is choosing to become steelworkers and he isn't here to fight us. But we did a campaign. <laughs> with them where we had to build a committee, we had to train workers on how to talk to their coworkers, we had to train them on what tactics the employer would use, then we had to send them off to talk to their coworkers, and we had to do all of this virtually. We weren't able to meet with them individually. And so we used a lot of these different tools to figure out, to pull people together, to figure out how to engage. Now, this museum campaign, and here's, here's I use it as an example because it's a good one. There are five different work locations, six different work locations, hundreds of workers across all these locations, um, and they didn't know each other. So it wasn't like a single facility. Uh, they didn't know each other. They'd never met each other. So we had to build a sense of community, of solidarity. Again, those are words that we use in the labor movement, a sense of solidarity with each other, enough to go out there and put themselves at risk. And when you talk about different types of workers being exposed to unionization, this is, these are highly educated, right? Um, predominantly young women, um, uh, predominantly female workforce, again, when I say highly educated, you know, master's degrees, et cetera, working part-time for $8 an hour. So when we talk about the working class, 
your education and all of uh, and 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 you know any benefits you may have had in your life when you go in and clock in you are part of the working class and so that's what has come to the realization of these workers and you need a union so i'm working with young highly educated women who have their master's degrees who have gone into debt to, to, you know, to, to advance their careers, all of this stuff, and their job opportunity in their chosen field, the profession pays $8.50 an hour. And they're part-time with no benefits. So when we talked about those essential workers that worked in, you know, meat processing or Amazon warehousing or grocery stores or these other stores like Target and Walmart, I want us to broaden our perspective and think about these other workers. This is now a, a an economic model that employers use. This isn't just about a, a segment of industry or a segment of profession. It's yeah. an economic model that employers will choose to hire part-time uh, folks and pay them as little as possible and give no benefits. That's the model. And it is seeping into every single aspect of our society. Yeah. I mean, a lot of political campaigns, their workers are, you know, are unionized. And these are people that have college degrees and are wearing suits. I got to say, when I read that the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh, uh, the uh, Carnegie Museum of Art, Museum of Natural History, uh, a Science Center, and the Andy Warhol Museum uh, voted uh, to unionize with the uh, USW, I was very happy. Um, But why did they? They did the same um, because they're working class. Uh, They did the same even though they're not blue collar. They said, look, we need to have a voice on the job. We want a seat at that table that you talked about to be on par with our employer. They had safety concerns, concerns about reopening, interacting with the public, and they wanted to preserve the mission um, and and they wanted to keep their jobs because the museum, like so many companies, was drastically cutting yeah. uh, jobs and benefits in, in the wake of the pandemic. So, you know, they, they wanted that safety net that unions so often fight for and provide. But there's another one I want you to speak to, because this one is one that made me go, huh? <laughs> and that is grad students oh, yes. at the University of Pittsburgh, right? A lot of people don't think of grad students as employees, but they are. Um, Tell us about this. And, you know, overall, these grad students at the University of Pittsburgh and any worker, if they needed a union before the pandemic, it's all the more urgent now, especially in light of the response or lack of the response from our president, our leader, his administration and our federal government. Right. Uh, I, I want to make comment about his lack of response. He had he has a lack of response to coronavirus, but n- but absolutely strident in his response against uh, international graduate students and international, anybody who's an immigrant or international person coming into this country. They're taking action there, but won't take national action to protect this. I find it, it's, it's so egregious. Uh, it, it Actually, it breaks my heart is what it does. Um, but yeah, graduate employees, I'm not specific about that because graduate, they are graduate students, but this section of the graduate students actually works for the university. Um, so they work for the university and the university, they're employed there, they do teaching. If you're paying full price, if you're sending any child of yours to uh, college anymore, my bet is that they are being taught by either a graduate employee or an adjunct who make very little. 
And the university is charging you full tuition and not giving anybody a cut rate. Um, Anyway, and so graduate employees at the University of Pittsburgh, there are thousands of them. They have working conditions that are, again, unsafe. And what you have is they face the same situation as teachers in the elementary schools or the uh, K through 12 schools. They're putting themselves in a situation where their employer is going to force them to once again face hundreds of kids or hundreds of students on a regular basis without any real protection in here. And so these employees need us more than ever, but we've been organizing them for the last several years because there are so many other working conditions that they want to be able to sit across that table with their employer, the University of Pittsburgh, and and have a discussion about, you know, what they what they do and 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 what they should be compensated for and how safe they can be when they're doing this work. And and they represent the university and the university makes a ton of money off, excuse me off of their backs and pit like many other institutions has billions of dollars in endowment they are the amazons of higher education they have billions of dollars in endowment and they too can choose to be differently, choose to to act differently toward their employees. We challenge Pitt to treat people differently during this time and to use that endowment to save jobs, to make people safe, uh, protect the the students and the workforce. And Pitt's response is, we are not going to use our endowment for this. That's not what it's meant for. If you don't have an endowment for emergencies, what other emergency could there be than a worldwide pandemic? That's Choose awesome. differently. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, I think people would have to be living under a rock if they didn't know that there were changes to the ICE uh, visa policy uh, that would attempt to force in-person classes for international students. That creates uh, or, or created certainly a real danger. Um, and I want to point out that unions like the USW were among the organizations who took the lead decrying this decision. And by the way, congrats, you know, USW and everyone else, you won because the ultimately uh, this was reversed. I mean, because even people within the president's party, Republicans said, this is not a good idea, Donald Trump. It's very, it's very rare that unions will be write amicus briefs on the same side as the Chamber of Commerce. And that's what happened this time, because it was such a wrong policy that there was no one who could speak in favor of it except the administration. And then even in the end, they pulled back. Oh, absolutely. And they had I mean, it, it was really I mean, left or right, people just knew this was wrong. This wasn't about left or right. This was wrong. Uh, Union organizers, workers, you mentioned, found new methods of capacity building by organizing remotely, holding campaign events through social media channels. I'm so glad you took the time to be with us today, Maria. Uh, You rock. You're awesome. Loved our little story. We'll have to uh, have a drink sometime when this is all over. Maria Soma, organizing director for the United Steelworkers. Please follow them on Twitter at Steelworkers and check out their website, USW.org. You can check out stuff about Maria there as well and all the great work that she and the Steelworkers do for so many people that aren't blue collar workers. They're, They're middle class, working class workers, whether they put a suit on or whether they put on a shirt that's going to be dirty at the end of the day. Thank you, Maria, for joining us. Have a wonderful day. Be safe, you and your family. I'm Leslie Marshall. Have a great afternoon. Shout out to Marky Mark Grimaldi, our executive producer. Have a great day. Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? 
Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit michiganlottery.com to add a little play to your day. At Speedway, we've always been here to get you what you need when you need it. We're committed to keeping our stores open, clean, and safe, so you can stay fueled and refreshed all summer long. We've got cold drinks for hot days and frozen drinks for even hotter ones, plus energy boosts, quick bites, and pick-me-ups. We're always on your way, and we're always here for you. So no matter what you need, when you stop by, we'll be ready. Now buy any three cooler beverages and get 500 bonus Speedy Rewards points.